Good morning, church. The Lord is risen. Oh, what a wonderful time to come together. Uh, every Sunday that we can come together and worship is a wonderful time, but especially on Easter Sunday as we celebrate uh, the, the risen tomb, uh, or the empty tomb and a risen Lord. Uh, but I saw something this week that I had never seen before regarding Easter. Uh, a friend of mine in the uh, Columbia, Irmo area, for those of you that are familiar, uh, shared a picture from her parents' neighborhood of a family that has an Easter dragon in their yard. And apparently, it's not just an Easter dragon. The dragon has actually been in the front yard since Christmas. It was a Christmas dragon, but now it's an Easter dragon. And you can tell it's an Easter dragon because it has a pretty floral bonnet and Easter eggs and bunnies all around it. But it, this yard in the Columbia area has an Easter dragon. And there were all these comments on, on the post of just how silly and ridiculous this dragon is. And, and as I was thinking about it, I find it funny that, we're, that people are quick to criticize the Easter dragon. All right, I get that. But it's no more ridiculous than celebrating a risen Lord in an empty tomb by hiding candy-filled eggs from a magical bunny. I mean, both are pretty absurd, but one is more acceptable culturally than the other. But I, it's funny because Easter, the, the celebration of, of remembering Christ's victory over sin and death, is celebrated more often than, uh, than not by candy and bunnies and getting all nice and dressed up and wearing your Easter best and sometimes going out and buying fancy new Easter clothes. And we do these things to celebrate Easter. In fact, yesterday we were at the store and we saw Easter baskets that have absolutely nothing to do with Easter, other than the fact that they had these eggs and candies, but they were filled with toys and soccer balls and all these crazy things that I've never thought to associate soccer with Easter, but apparently now it's a thing that you can buy an Easter basket full of soccer balls. And Okay, all right, let's do that then, and let's go buy a, a fancy new Easter uh, outfit. And I know our, our daughter got a new Easter dress, and she's so beautiful, like wearing her cute little Easter dress, but... At the same time, we've mixed the rich, glorious resurrection with all of this stuff that doesn't really have anything to do with the risen Savior. In fact, if there were some sort of alien life that were to come and visit our planet on Easter Sunday, I don't think they would actually realize that we're worshiping a risen Savior, but this alien life form would think that as, as a nation that we are celebrating candy and eggs and bunnies. And Easter itself has almost become uh, as absurd as the Easter dragon itself. But I must admit, there is something that I do love about Easter, and I have to share it with you is my love of marshmallow peeps. You might not have ever seen an Easter sermon with a marshmallow peep before, but now you have. In fact, I'm 
going to enjoy this while I'm talking to you, but years ago, I was living in Rock Hill, and I was on staff at Westminster Presbyterian Church, serving in the youth ministry department, and uh, my boss and I, I was very close with his family, he was my, my best man in my wedding, but every Easter we would get together uh, and, and celebrate uh, basically by enjoying good food together. And often when we would get together, we would, you know, roast things over the fire pit and make s'mores and things like that. And, but on Easter, we learned something magical, that you can roast a marshmallow peep over a fire. And the sugar outside caramelizes and gets all hard and crunchy, and the inside gets all soft and gooey, and it's like a poor man's creme brulee. It's a wonderful thing. And I'm sharing this knowledge with you now. But when, once we did that, it was like this revelation went off and like, this? We need to share this with people. And I almost became an evangelist of the roasted marshmallow peep. I was going around and I was telling all of my friends in seminary and we, we told all the kids in youth group about this wonderful thing that we had basically done as a joke that became something beautiful. And even to this day, I love telling people, like I just told you, about my poor man's creme brulee. Whether people love or hate marshmallow peeps, because there are some people that hate them and they're strange, but I love sharing that story and that experience with them. But there have been times where I wonder, am I as passionate about sharing the gospel as I am about sharing a roasted marshmallow peep story. And so we look at this opening passage of Acts, and this is told from the viewpoint of a man who is intently focused on sharing this life-changing event. He saw the risen Savior. He saw Jesus after His death in physical form, and He said, I have to tell people about this. In fact, I would even say that this passage is both, it's not just a reminder, but it's a challenge that all Christians are called to share the gospel of Jesus with others. Because people naturally share the things that they're excited about. For those of you that have read a book that really changed your life, or there's a TV show that you just cannot get away from, like you binge watch every chance you get. Maybe it's a sports team that you just can't help, but you've got all of the, 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 what, the, the team paraphernalia, and you've got all the, the shirts and the, the matching socks and, and all this stuff, and you've got the posters everywhere, and the, the license plate and the, the sticker. You've got all this stuff, and you can't help but share because you're passionate about it. For us, our recent love has been sharing our favorite taco truck on Remount Road with everybody, and it's a wonderful thing, and my taco truck is better than your taco truck. But people naturally share the things that they're passionate about and excited about. You share the things that you love because you want other people to have the same experience and the same love that you feel. And so if the gospel has truly captivated your heart, if you have seen the risen Savior and said, I have to share this. That is the natural response of a heart 
that has been gripped by the gospel. And so we see in this passage that there are three ways that we are called to share. First, in verses 1-3, through by witnessing where He was then. Second, in verses 4-8, through by witnessing where you are now. And lastly, in verses 9-11, through by witnessing where you go next. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time that we come together this morning in celebration that this isn't just uh, a mere uh, attendance, that this isn't just a, uh, a tradition that we have, but God, that this is a celebration, that this is a time to come together as we rejoice our risen Savior. And for these next few moments, God, I pray that, that these words that come out of my mouth would not just be my ideas, that this would not just be uh, my uh, speaking, but, but God, that you would pour out your Spirit in this place, that you would use the words of a broken man like me to advance your kingdom and to make your name great. Be with us now in this time. And share your mercy and your grace and your compassion with your people. We pray in the victorious name of Jesus. Amen. Now I know we've been in the book of Ephesians and we're taking a a brief time out as we're celebrating Easter. And so to give you a recap on the book of Acts, this was actually uh, uh, written by the disciple Luke. He was a disciple of Christ and an evangelist with the apostle Paul. And most likely, he was actually a Gentile who was a God-fearing Gentile who, who worshipped the, the Jewish traditions, but when, once he learned about Jesus, he became a disciple of Christ himself. But the book of Acts is actually the second written account by Luke, the first, of course, being the gospel according to Luke. And so, the first writing the the gospel according to Luke, he wrote to a friend of his named Theophilus because he wanted to share everything that he had learned and experienced because he wanted Theophilus to know the same joy that he's experienced. And so the gospel according to Luke is all about the birth and life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And it actually ends where Jesus was crucified and buried and resurrected and the gospel according to Luke ends with Jesus' ascension into heaven. And then the book of Acts picks up in that experience, kind of unpacks it a little bit, but the book of Acts is about what happens next. If the gospel of Luke was about the the work of Jesus, then the, the book of Acts is about the work of the Spirit through the apostles. And so... Uh, Luke is sharing these experiences in this historical narrative in order to share these experiences with Theophilus so he can know about the glory of a risen Savior. And so he opens his account by witnessing where he was then, and the he being Jesus. In verses 1-2, through he says, In the first book, O Theophilus, being the Gospel, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So he was referring to his, his first writing where he covered everything he, uh, that Jesus 
went through. He covered the birth and life of Jesus, the death and resurrection. And as I said, it ends with the Jesus ascending into heaven, and now he's beginning to take that experience and unpack that story a little bit and, and keeps going. And so he says, this, uh, this is what Jesus did. And let's, let's look at what, what happened from there. And he goes on in verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. For those of you that are familiar with your scriptural references, uh, there's the, this recurring motif of the number 40 uh, throughout God's people, uh, such as the, the 40 years that God's people were wandering in the wilderness. Or when Jesus was uh, fasting and being tempted, that Jesus himself was in the wilderness for 40 days. And so when Jesus had resurrected, he was with his people for 40 days again. So there's this recurring motif that for those people that are familiar with how God works among his people, they instinctively see that 40 and say, all right, this is a continuation of what God has already been doing. But then he says that, that Jesus provided many proofs to his resurrection. And some of these you might be familiar with, because, but there were some that said that the resurrection of Jesus was not actually a physical resurrection. There were some that said that this was just a spiritual thing, that there wasn't a physical body that rose again, but that there was just this Jesus ghost kind of walking around, that there was a spirit interacting with people. But we see where Jesus had walked up to Thomas after he had appeared to the other uh, uh, disciples. He walked up to Thomas and he said, put your, your finger where the, where the nails were. Feel the wound in my side. He's inviting Thomas to come and touch his physical body and experience the, the, the physical sensation of those wounds for himself. Or where Jesus comes up to the disciples, uh, he appears to them again after, after the encounter with, uh, with the disciples and Thomas. He appears to them as they're fishing. And he tells, go, put your nets down over there. And they, they haul in this huge, overwhelming load of fish. And then he invites them to come in and have breakfast with them. That there is a physical body that doesn't just have interaction, but actually eats and consumes food. He cooks breakfast for them. He eats with them. That there is this, a physical interaction that there are physical proofs that he is not just a spirit, he's not some kind of ghost walking around, but that his physical body itself was resurrected. Some even said that the resurrection itself was a hoax, that the whole thing was just this elaborate story put on just to kind of further this, this narrative that the, the disciples had created. And so, Luke, in, in this opening, he mentions the apostles because most of the apostles were still alive at the time that this was written. And he mentions them because Theophilus, if he so choose, could go and actually speak with them. 
that he's not just taking Luke at his own word, but that he had the opportunity, if he so desired, to go and talk with the people that were physically there and say, what, what did you see? What was your experience? What did you interact with? Go and talk with them. On an interesting side note, from 1969 to 1973, Charles Colson was the chief counsel for President Nixon. In fact, Colson was part of the team that organized the, the burglary of a psychiatrist's office that further became the Watergate scandal. He was convicted on obstruction of justice and spent seven months in prison. And while he was there in prison, he, that's where he was converted to Christianity and from there became a well-known evangelist and speaker and author. And he actually has this to say regarding the testimony of the apostles. He says, I know that the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul himself kind of continues on that line of thought where he mentions that Jesus had been witnessed by over 500 people at one time. And he says, most of whom are still alive. Why does he mention that? Because he's telling the audience, go, talk to the people that were there. Hear the account of the witnesses that saw what happened. And they will verify everything. Tomorrow, you're going to end up going back to uh, wherever you end up going on Mondays, either, either back to school or back to work. Maybe you go to a, a, a gym or, or where, I, I don't know what, you, what your Monday routine is, but you're going to go and someone at some point is going to ask you how your weekend went. And you're actually going to have the opportunity to say, it was good, I, I went to church yesterday morning and my pastor ate a marshmallow peep as he began his sermon. And as any rational person would say, that's ridiculous. No self-respecting pastor would dare eat anything during a sermon, let alone a marshmallow peep. And you're going to say, no, no, I saw it with my own eyes. They might continue to question your integrity. And so you could take the person who's sitting next to you at this very moment and say, look, this person saw it too. That it was, I'm not making this up. This person can, can tell the truth that, that the pastor ate a ridiculously yellow marshmallow peep and probably has diabetes now from that one marshmallow. But they can testify that it's true. And if they continue to question you, you could, if you so desired, you could bring everybody that's in this room right now to verify your account and say, everyone here saw that this pastor 
ate a ridiculous yellow marshmallow peep as part of his sermon. And I know that sounds absolutely silly, but there's verification by all of these people agreeing with the story that you just told. And that is what Luke is doing here in the beginning of Acts. That's what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians. He's saying, this is not just me telling you this crazy story. There are witnesses that can testify to what should be absurd, but it is true. Go and ask them. And I know today we're some 2,000 odd years removed from the people that were there and witnessed this, but Scripture itself is a historical document that records these events in the resurrection. But there are other historical documents as well that agree with what Scripture says. There's the, uh, the, the Jewish historian Josephus, and there, if, you're, if, you're, if you really desire, you could learn Greek, and that we actually have documents of, of like properties that belong to people and things like that, and there are actual written documents that record a tomb that was used but was found empty. There are actual historical documents that verify what is recorded in Scripture. And so this narrative cannot just be simply dismissed if, it, if you don't like what it says because there are other documents that verify the validity of what Scripture is saying. There are written accounts of people that witnessed something miraculous. Even if they don't agree with it, they say there was something that happened. And at some level, you have to interact with the written recorded documents themselves. But in addition to the accounts of the witnesses then, the gospel is also shared by witnessing where you are now. In verse 4, Luke writes, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, or, which he said you heard from me. For John baptized with water... But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. He's saying, don't go yet. Something big is coming. And he's, he's mentioned in the past that once he departs, that the Father will send a helper. So he's told this to the disciples repeatedly, but he's reminding them one more time, don't go yet. Something big is coming. And yet, the disciples still didn't get it. If you look next in in verse 6, it says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And I... Whenever I read this, I just, I have to, like, was this a facepalm moment for Jesus? Like, was he just like... "Mm." Like, that, that moment when you're... For those of you that have children, when your kid asks you like the 500th time, why can't I have my Easter candy for breakfast? And you're just like, no, we don't do candy for breakfast. And it's just that exasperation moment where it's just like, I've told you over and over and over again that this is not the limitation of what the gospel is doing. That's what I feel like Jesus is doing here. He's like, I've told you guys. Let me tell you again. 
And maybe I'm reading too much into that, but that's what I see that he's telling them over and over again. They're like, but this is what we want, Jesus. And he's like, no, 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 it's so much bigger than that. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That the time of ultimate restoration is coming, but it's not for them to know. That, that knowledge is not necessary for them to do what needs to be done, but what he's calling them to do is to be a witness. He's not saying, you, I want you to be my scholars. I want you to be my experts. He says, you will be my witnesses. And for those of you that are familiar, uh, at least somewhat, with a courtroom proceeding, what does a witness do but gives their testimony? A witness doesn't come and give everything that might have happened in an encounter. A witness comes and shares what they experienced, what they saw, what they know. And so when Jesus is telling the disciples, when he's saying, you will be my witnesses, he's not saying, I want you to memorize all of the Old Testament covenants and everything else. I want you to go and share what you have seen and experienced and what you have known. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says this in chapter 2. He says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you, among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He didn't come to them trying to impress them with, with wisdom or, or knowledge. He came just bearing the testimony of Jesus Christ in the resurrection so that way their faith would not be in Him and His speaking ability, but that their faith would be in the Jesus that He proclaims. And that is what a witness does. To be a witness does not require a, a, a seminary education. You don't need a degree or certification. You don't have to go back and memorize your Old Testament covenants and the kings of Israel and, and Judah. You share what you've seen and experienced. Like when you share the story of the first time you, you met that person that forever changed your life. The first time you read that book that you're like, it opened my eyes and I see everything so differently now. The first time, for those of you that are parents, the first time that you hold your child and just the overwhelming awe that washes over you. That experience where the first time you feel like someone took notice of you and encouraged you when you felt like no one even knew you existed, when you share those kind of experiences with people, there's a natural, raw emotion behind it that people know that you're not just spouting facts, trying to impress them, but that you're sharing 
your testimony of your experience. And that is what Christ is calling you to do as his witness. And then he says, when you're going as a witness specifically to the disciples, he says that you'll be going to Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That there's this progression that they're starting right where they are in Jerusalem. That they're going to the neighboring uh, uh, areas of Judea, the, the neighboring people that they love, and Samaria, the neighboring people that they despise that they're still called to advance the gospel in both those areas, but that they're called to keep going until the ends of the earth. And so there's this call to, to advance the gospel, but there's also the realization of wherever you are, you're called to be a witness there. That sharing the gospel is not just something that you do on a mission trip or whenever there's a church event or sharing the gospel is not just, hey, you should come and hear our church service on Sunday. But being a witness of the gospel is that wherever you are, in your classroom, at, at your, your, your sports events and your games, at a, a, a family get-together, at, at work, or wherever you go, you have opportunities to share your experience. Not a memorization of Old Testament prophets and scriptures, but to share your witness and testimony. And so I have to ask, has the gospel captivated your heart to the point where you cannot help but share it? That wherever you go, that you just can't help but say, I know I've told you this already like 25 times, but I've got to tell you at least 25 more. This is what I have seen in my own life. What would it take for you to share what God has done for you? And as you look to where Christ has been, as you look to the opportunities to share where you are now, you find that you're not just looking at the past and the present, but that you will be witnessing where you go next. Picking up in verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, Scripture doesn't give a time frame as to what's going on here, but I think a natural reaction to seeing something like that would be a moment of shock and awe that, uh, I don't know about you guys, but I've never seen someone just standing in front of me and all of a sudden like lift into the heavens to where I can't see them anymore. That kind of thing is not a normal everyday occurrence. And it's that moment where almost cartoon-like, the jaw just drops and you're like, And I get the impression as I'm reading this that they're just kind of standing there for a while. Like, you saw that too, right? Like, almost this collective sense like, I'm not going crazy here, am I? That just really happened, right? And so I see this, and it seems like they're standing there so long that some angels walk up and are like, guys, what are you doing? 
What's going on? You saw him go up, but he's going to come back the very same way. And I read this, and it feels like it's a call to action. Uh, it's a motivator. Let's, let's get moving. Because yes, what Jesus did was amazing. But don't just focus on what happened. Look to what's coming next. Jesus has come, and He's promised that the Holy Spirit is coming next, that the Holy Spirit will be within them. That Jesus will not just be next to them physically, but that God the Spirit will be within their very being. They're looking in amazement as to what just happened. And they're overlooking the fact that something greater even still is yet to come. And I think far too often in our day, churches have a tendency to become kind of a social club. Where we get together and we see our friends and the people that we care about, and start reliving the glory days. When you start he- hearing things like, do you, remember, do you remember that one time that we did that thing? Man, that was awesome. And it's good to share those experiences and to remember the wonderful things that happened in the past, but sometimes part of human nature is to get so focused on what happened in the past that you forget the passion and the urgency for what's coming next. In 2 Peter chapter 3, in verses 9-10, through 10, Peter writes this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That there's an urgency because we do not know when Christ is coming again. And part of a Christian's job, wherever you may find yourself, is to share your witness, testimony, experience of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And yes, what happened in the past was good, But there are still more people that need to hear your story. They might not need to hear Tom's story. They might need to hear Barry's story or Suzanne's story. They might need to hear William's story. Wherever you are, you are called to share your gospel encounter with others around you. Because there are some people who have never truly heard the gospel. In our American culture, people are familiar with the concept of God and the the moral teachings of who this Jesus person was. But that itself is not the gospel. People need to hear about the broken relationship between God and man. People need to hear about the sinfulness that is born into man that leads to to death. That you were unable to save yourself from that sinfulness. And yet God, in His covenant faithfulness, moved on your behalf first. And that while you were still an enemy of God, Jesus Christ came in perfect obedience and sinlessness. 
God the Son came in the flesh to be the perfect sacrifice on the cross. And He took your sins upon Himself as He was nailed to the cross so your sin could die with Him. That your sin was placed in that tomb and when He rose again, that He demonstrated His victory over death and over sin. And He transferred His status of righteousness to you. That is the Gospel. And that is what people need to hear. And we we should never be tired of hearing what God's love has done on our behalf. And that is what we celebrate today. We're not here to celebrate bunnies and eggs and chocolate, which are good things in and of themselves, but we are here today to celebrate the Gospel of a risen Lord that walked out and left an empty tomb. That this God came in the flesh to redeem what was broken. And one day, He will come again for ultimate restoration and redemption. And so your faith is not one that just reflects on what was done, but the Gospel drives you and me and all of us to keep moving forward so all may hear the Gospel. And so I don't know where you stand in your own faith today. I don't know where you are. If you have questions about the Gospel or Jesus, good, ask them. Look for answers. Dig. And I am confident that you will find answers that reveal an empty tomb and a risen Savior. And for those of you who claim the name of Jesus Christ, today we celebrate, but it's also a challenge. Are you a witness wherever you go bearing the name of Christ in your own Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria? That you are a witness for His name where you are and the neighbors surrounding you. The Gospel is a glorious display of God's affection. Look and rejoice, but will you keep moving forward to share the glorious news of a risen Savior? Will you do that? Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before You today in celebration and excitement and pure joy because of the love that You shared for us. That even when we were still against You, that You loved us and sent Your Son to take a punishment that we deserved. And so God, we confess that far too often we try in our own strength. And we want to rest on our own efforts. God, let us give up on our own strength and let us find our rest in the work that Jesus Christ did for us. Let us find our our hope and our peace in His resurrection. That He took our punishment and our sin and that that died with Him on the cross and that in His resurrection that He gives us hope for today and tomorrow and forevermore. God, we pray all of this in His risen, mighty, 
victorious name. Amen.